Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Before we start the show, I want to let you know something. My latest novel, Personal Fable, is free for the next uh, few days. So if you're hearing this ad, it's currently free if you're a Kindle user. So just look it up on your Kindle. If you don't have a Kindle, you can even get one of those for free by getting the free Kindle app on your phone. And then head over, get Personal Fable, have a read, and if you love it, leave a review. And I hope you love the story. Now, let's get on with the podcast. P.S. The promotion runs the 11th, 12th, and 13th of March. Welcome back to the Hemingway List Year of War and Peace. Talking about Chapter 6 or Chapter 7, 8, 9 if you're reading Maud. Just to be super confusing. Hey, I was thinking about this today, actually. The fact that they don't align. And if you're anything like me, you've got some slight OCD about that. And it's very unsettling that we're all on different chapters and they all end in different places. And I just wanted to point out that it does realign because we're reading book one and we're misaligned. But soon we'll finish book one and we'll finish book one at the same time, even though some of us will be reading chapter you know, 22 and some of us will be reading chapter 24, for example. I'm not sure exactly where it ends. But you know what I mean. They'll end. We'll still end on the same day, which means we'll all start book two, chapter one, on the same day, and then we'll all be on the same chapter, the same page, and it'll all align nicely and neatly. So if you've got a bit of OCD about it, there you go. I just wanted to put your mind at ease with that. Hmm. Today's episode of the Hemingway List is brought to you by the beverage coffee, which I am drinking currently. Even though it's uh, 10 p.m., that's not bad. I've had later coffees than that. Um, it's also brought to you by the uh, the Patreon page, Hemingway. Uh, what am I saying? Patreon.com slash the Hemingway list. You can go on there. If you want to um, support the show, you can donate as little as $1 per month for as many or as few months as you like. Um, and you can just choose a value that you feel equals the value of this podcast in your life. Um, what are we talking about here? Okay, 789. Pierre can't help himself. He goes drinking with Karagan. What was your favorite moment from this scene? We met Anatole. What is your first impression of him? And we met Karagan, crossed out. Dolokhov, too. We met Dolokhov, too. When I first wrote these discussion prompts last night, I wrote it wrong. I wrote, we met Anatole and Karagin, where Anatole's last name is Karagin. I meant to say, we met Anatole and Dolokhov. <laughs> and I feel bad, too, because so many newbies are struggling with the names. You know, they're confusing enough as it is. And here I am, messing up the names. People second-guessing, wait a minute, I thought that was his name. What? Yeah, so... I, I apologize for that. Um, great chapter ending with him dancing with a bear. <laughs> uh, Fish Tears says, I love that thus far, the book has just been high society, having complex political discussions, and out of nowhere we have drunken bear dancing. Ah, Tolstoy. It's very Tolstoy. Trilingual fangirl says, I don't know if anyone else noticed this. When Andre, and I think Pierre too, refers to Napoleon, he calls him Bonaparte, B-O-N-A-P-A-R-T-E. Everyone else calls him Bonaparte, B-U-B-U-O-N-A-P-A-R-T-E. 
This distinction was something I noticed when reading Les Mis, and apparently Napoleon changed the spelling of his name from the Italian, Buonaparte, to the French, Bonaparte. People who didn't like Napoleon at that time would use the Italian spelling to indicate that they didn't approve of him being the Emperor of France, and people in favour would use, usually use the French spelling. Just thought that would be interesting to mention. Yep, very well done. Thank you very much, trilingual fangirl, for pointing that out. Um, it's uh, it's something that you will notice in the first few chapters of this. A lot of mentions of Bonaparte and a lot of different spellings, or, or you know, different spellings between those mentions, um, and that's why you can tell who approves and who disapproves by if they've used that extra uh, vowel, the U, B U O instead of B O N. Thanks for pointing that out. By the way, there was a hundred, there was sorry ninety eight comments at the time of me recording this podcast. Ninety eight comments on today's discussion forum. <laughs> Pat yourselves on the back, guys. That's uh, f- fantastic. Um, it, the only downside, and it's not a downside at all, really, is just I can't read ninety-eight comments on every podcast, so it does mean I have to just kind of skim through, and I don't read them first to pick out, you know, a dozen good ones. I just literally scroll, scroll and read at random. So um, I kind of glance and try to get the gist of what they're talking about and see, oh yeah, I'll read that one. But, you know, I don't want to be stalling and pre-reading them mid-stream, mid-podcast. So, um, what am I saying? Yeah, I don't know. Well done. You can tell why I need this coffee, can't you? My brain isn't quite online tonight. Um, Rick Evans said, oh wait, Fruit Jelly Gummy Bear said this, I love Pierre's justification for going to Anatole's. Sure, I gave my word to Andre, but earlier I gave my word to Anatole, so what does that really mean? Plus, I might die tomorrow, and then what value does my word really mean? That's awesome. That's <laughs> pretty much exactly what he does, right? Total lo- lack of self-control, and I can't even be honest with himself, and he can't even be honest with himself about it. A pick Alexio said... I thought it was really interesting how Pierre gave his word to Andre that he wouldn't go to Anatole's and then immediately went back on it, considering Pierre's defining characteristic so far has been his authenticity. Yeah, weak-willed is what he is. He's um, authentic, not in in the sense of, you know, um, you know, honest to a fault sort of thing, not like that. You know, he's authentic as is sort of what you see is what you get, <laughs> I think, is is the best way with Andre. Um, another thing I'll point out, because um, I, I just remember being confused about this years ago when I read War and Peace for the first time, is that he was talking about whether or not he was going to go to Karagans. And I was confused because I knew he was staying with Vasily Karagan. And I assumed that, you know, his family, including Anatole, they all lived together in one house. Um, Now, I think... Now, it's either this is one of these two things. Either Anatole doesn't live where his father lives, and they have separate mansions, or they do live in the same mansion, but the mansion is so big... That it's like, 
you either tell your the, the the taxi driver, you know, the guy driving the horse, to go one place, or you tell them to go a different place. Like they're so far away, even though it's really the same estate. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Anyway, and I think it's the latter. I think that's the the scale of the grandiosity. Is going to their house is like going to a suburb. Rick Evans said, I thought this longish chapter really reframed my opinions of Andre and Pierre. Whereas previously Pierre seemed more high-minded and Andre spoiled, we now see that things are much more complex. In this chapter, we see more of Andre's unhappiness and learn that he is much more intelligent and capable than has been apparent up to this point. Conversely, we see Pierre's immaturity come to the fore in the lively drinking scene. Although Pierre breaks his promise to Andre, it's hard to feel angry with him as there is something exuberant about his youthful folly. However, it's just a few careful words. Tolstoy makes it clear that Dolokhov is bad news. Dolokhov is a great character. And, um, I mean, yeah, he's trouble, that's for sure, but he's a great character, very charismatic, and I imagine him as sort of Errol Flynn kind of character, you know, a bit of a swashbuckler. Um, and what were we saying here about there's something else in that comment struck me. Oh, Andre being intelligent. Andre is intelligent, I think. And I think it almost feels unfair that we see him, we meet him in this context of being unhappy and with his wife and his life and saying such bitter things. But then it's almost like, you know, two close friends, you know, guy friends, and I'm sure girlfriends probably do the same thing of like, you know when you need to vent about something and it all comes out at once and he's saying don't ever get married and it's the worst thing about it. And I think it's a, it's almost a bit like we're definitely seeing him just blowing off a bit of steam there. I don't think he is as bitter as that would make him appear. Although he is quite bitter. But do you know what I mean? Like we're seeing it being vented in its pure form. He's not walking around like that all the time. He's just having a bit of a moment where it's all come to a bit of a come to a bit of a head for him. Psychological bag four one four. Hi all. If anyone is reading more, this brings us up to the end of chapter nine. Thank you very much. Psychological bag four one four. Andre Bolkonsky sixty nine says, "Fun fact: Tolstoy went through three identical." identifiable phases of writing when writing these opening chapters. The first put the author and narrator as an active part of the prose, constantly commenting on the events unfolding and not being afraid of fourth wall breaks and long-form exposition. The first chapter was originally intended to be a long summary of the year 1804. Very interesting. In the second phase, he tried to conceal this voice completely and so took on a very impressionistic approach that put us in the mind of one character and only commented on what that character saw, heard, or experienced. And in the third, he finally adopted his trademark floating consciousness that moved from one character to another, from the individual to the general in the space of sometimes a few sentences. Uh, on the second stage, two episodes remained unchanged through the third for whatever reason, the first being the last part of this chapter, Pierre, with the Karagans. This is why we don't get any other characters' thoughts and why we don't get any descriptions of what's going on when Pierre closes his eyes, for example. Hey, that is very interesting. So I did notice that, that when Pierre closed his eyes, you know, there's a gap in the narrative until everyone cheers. 
and he opens them again to see what they're chewing about, and it is very much from his point of view. Andre Bolkonski 69 said it's from Tolstoy and the Genesis of War and Peace by Catherine B. Fewer, which I highly recommend. Very cool, might have to give that a read. Got a very nice present today, by the way. Today was my birthday, we had a little birthday gathering. Um, and a buddy of mine, an author named Robbie Verhagen, very good um, historical fiction author, gave me a beautiful leather-bound edition of War and Peace with the gold around the edge of the pages. Um, really, really nice. It's a Maud edition, I'm pretty sure, and uh, it's a great gift. Anyway, that's a bit off topic. Well, it's on topic, but anyway, <laughs> Greyboff said this. Yikes. Say what you really think, Andre. Yeah, I feel that. Grumpy Shakespearean said this. I really like Andre when we first met him. I found his obvious boredom and the way he stuck up for Pierre during Napoleon's his Napoleon rant quite charming, but the way he treats his wife is appalling. Yeah, I would agree with that. Also, the very thought of chugging an entire bottle of rum while already drunk and sitting on a pr- precious windowsill makes me feel nauseous. Dolokhov is that one friend you know is going to ruin everyone's night. I think he would make a great night. He's that one friend where when you go out, you're like, this is going to either be a great night or we're all going to end up in jail. You know, it could go either way. <laughs> uh, if no one fought except on his own conviction, there would be no wars. My husband is in the military and he and I talk about this a lot. A whole bottle of rum. A whole bottle of rum. Crazy. Totoboss says, what a sensitive soul Pierre has. The sight of Lisa in tears makes him tear up. Yeah. Right. Um, that is a sweet moment. It is a sweet moment. Um, Star Stradivarius Kazoo. (laughs) Stradivarius Kazoo. Good name. Said, I started to reread last December week, but I didn't get too far. When I found this sub, I thought, why not join this year? I'm a bit ahead, but a few days will be literally on the same page. Awesome. Good to have you here, Stradivarius Kazoo. I have to say the party scene is one of my favorites because the levels of drunken idiocy absolutely off the charts and very entertaining. Basically, Andre says, Pierre, promise me you won't go to Anatoly's. Pierre says, all right. Andre says, honest. Pierre says, of course, I promise. A cut to Pierre amidst a gaggle of rowdy young men, Dolokhov on the windowsill chugging an entire bottle of rum, bear noises in the background. As for Anatoly and Dolokhov, they're definitely a disastrous duo. You can tell right away they're going to be causing problems on purpose. Oh yeah. Mr. Ads said, my copy has this line towards the end. Is the place blanked out because it's irrelevant or is there some other reason? But now we are going to blanks. The implied word is the whores, says Corsio. The word for whore is considered an obscenity and had to be censored in print. Oh, very cool. Um, I did a bit of digging years back on this very point to find out what that dash was. And I think it was in one version. I think it it wasn't even in one of the English translations. It was in a different language and it said Georgette's. And Georgette's was a famous whorehouse in Petersburg at the time, Georgette's. So I think the word was actually Georgette's. At least that's um, what it was in one particular translation. And so I kept that in on my version as well. Um, 
I don't even know where I picked that up. It was years ago in a, in a previous War and Peace reading, but uh, um, I'm sure someone will be able to look into that and see if I'm on the right mark or not. Um, moving right along. Cover the Tuber says, Hi, I missed two days because of work, and now I'm all caught up. Welcome back. Not keen on Andre's misogyny. Yeah, it's fair to criticize society and the institution of marriage, but to lay it all at the feet of the women is really poor and really illogical. Yeah, yeah, we're seeing a man very frustrated with the situation he's put himself into and very unfairly lashing out. Um, yeah, I think. Twisted Every Way says, wait, a legit bear? I had to read that three times. Yeah, a legit bear. <laughs> um, the bear threw me off too, says Warren Kavoffi. Um, Twisted Every Way says, Anatoly comes off as a total frat douche. Maybe only Dolokhov is worse, egging everyone on. Pierre, just out there living his everyday life. Whatever, wherever the breeze takes him. <laughs> yeah, a bear. It's just a bear. I am Norwegian, says, Andre isn't happy at all. He does come across badly, but I sort of get it. He's ended up in high society and realized the emptiness of it all and maybe of life in general. He doesn't care about the politics of war, but sees it as a crucible where something meaningful might be forged. Yeah, that's perfectly on the mark. Pierre, on the other hand, has his head in the clouds. He drinks and reads and awkwardly stumbles about having no idea what to do, and yet he feels like he has the answers and that they lie in politics and references to ideals like freedom and equality, though this evening activities... His evening activities do seem more fun. Now that I'm reading the book again, I'm even more surprised at how meek Pierre seemed just a few pages ago, and now he's lifting bears and going to whores. Pierre. <laughs> Acoustic Gill says, Wasn't there a username called Fumbling Bear a commenting a few days ago? You're in the book. <laughs> You've made it into the book, Fumbling Bear. Well done. Um... Moving along, moving along, let me just scroll down some of these comments. Man, there's so many comments. <laughs> the Karishi said, The scene from Robin Hood, Men in Tights, made Marion, a.k.a. Andre, promise you won't gay, go. <laughs> promise you won't go. Pierre slash Robin, all right, I promise you won't go. Pierre, well, I made two promises. I have to break one. Now, which break results in booze and women? <laughs> Pretty much exactly it. Pierre's mother, if your friend jumped off the bridge for $50, would you do it? Pierre, I'd do it next for free. Yep, spot on. Um, <laughs> I love that there's just a bear. And I do remember, um, this was from, I think this is probably from the first reading of War and Peace, of someone saying like, wait, why do they have a bear? And someone else saying, Simply because Russia. <laughs> and I've just been like, yeah, that's it. And also someone else being like, um, someone saying today, you know, did, how can he drink a whole bottle of rum when he's already drunk? And again, the answer is because Russia. You know, these guys, are they're just, they're on a different plane, the Russians. They don't drink the same as we do. You know, when we drink... We, you know, if, if I have a few drinks, get a bit drunk, I might, I might feel like, you know, if I'm feeling a bit out there, I might have a bit of a dance. I might feel like having a bit of a dance. If they drink, they feel like having a bit of a dance with a bear. 
it's different. I might feel like dancing. They might feel like going into the local wilderness, putting an apex predator onto a leash, taking it back to their mansion, and then dancing with it. That's more the Russian style. They just do things differently over there. But Brett Peterson said, My favourite moment from the frat boy party was the final dance with the bear. Just picturing that in my head is wild. Anatole reminds me of a classic frat boy. Rich, but just living for today and not thinking about the future. Dolokhov reminds me of some of the American infantry infantrymen I have met. Very competitive, lacking inhibitions when it comes to alcohol consumption. You know, Dolokhov, what Dolokhov is, and... Excuse me, forgive, this is, forgive me if this is a old-fashioned term, but he's very much a man's man, isn't he? You know, he's, he's a man and he does things for the approval of the other men around him. I think that's what he does. And he does it effortlessly. I don't think he does it... Um, I don't think he... I don't think he makes an effort to try to do that. I think that's just who he is. All right. Um, you know, another thing I was thinking about today, and I'll just bring this up on the podcast, is in the last few chapters, it's funny, I've done over a thousand episodes of the Hemingway list, and it was always, uh, I never swore in a thousand episodes. I don't think I ever swore. And I kind of made a, a decision to do that at the very start, thinking it's a, you know, it's a podcast about literature. Open it up so young people can listen to. There's no need to swear. Then when I started translating War and Peace into Bogan Aussie, you know, I thought, okay, I can swear in this, that's fine. And if anything, that's only going to bring in more young readers of that kind of... I'd love for teenagers to be more inclined to read War and Peace. And a teenager doesn't care about a swear word, you know. They've heard it all before. If anything, that's going to make them want to read it more. So it's kind of a sneaky way in and a bit of a roundabout reverse way, you know, it's a bit backwards, of using inappropriate language to actually try to get younger readers to maybe read it um but then that come around to um reading the chapter on the podcast and i just went okay well i guess i'll just say the swear words it's no big deal we're all adults here but i think in reading the last few chapters i felt like there was just a bit too much you know and i can only blame myself for that because i did it but i'm not against using a swear word in the book but now i'm i'm 20 or 30 chapters forward from you know the chapter I read to you last night and by now I'm kind of being a bit sparing with my swear words I only use one if it's funny pretty much I only use it if it's properly funny uh, and I just thought it's, it might be a bit off-putting that in the first within 10 chapters of this book of book one there's just heaps of swearing so I think the good thing about doing this project is, you know, book one is already out, but I'm also using this whole year as a way, as I read through it, to kind of tinker and just, you know, change a word here and there. I think I will swap out some of those swear words. I was just curious if anyone else thought the same thing. Um, yeah. It's no biggie. It's just a bit. The other thing is, though, it's like that particular chapter with a bunch of rowdy blokes getting drunk, dancing with a bear, doing dares. It, it, if nearly in the whole book, that is the the chapter that would most of all lend itself to some a fair bit of you know coarse language. So there's also that to consider that it could just be that that chapter in particular was very sweary. Anyway, I just thought I'd bring that up.
And now, speaking of bringing things up, I'm going to bring up chapter 10 and read it to you. Chapter 10. All right, chapter 10 goes like this. Prince Vasily was true to his word and followed up on what he promised Princess Drubetskaya at Anna Pavlovna's soiree. He put in a good word to the emperor about her son Boris. An exception was made and Boris was transferred into the regiment of Semenov guards with the rank of cornet. That was sick. So that was sick. <laughs> so that was sick. Uh, but he did. But he didn't get appointed to Kutuzov's staff, despite how desperately Anna Mikhailovna kissed ass trying to get the hookup. Soon after Anna Pavlovna's reception, Anna Mikhailovna returned to Moscow and sent and went straight to stay with her rich relations, the Rostovs. She always stayed with the Rostovs when in Moscow. It was where her precious boy Bori, who had only just returned sorry, who had only just entered a regiment of the line and was being transferred to the guards as a cornet, had been educated since he was knee-high to a grasshopper. He'd lived at the Rostovs for years at a time. The guards had already left Petersburg on the 10th of August, and her son, who had remained in Moscow for his equipment, was to join them on the march to Radzivilov. It was St. Natalia's Day, which was the name day of two of the Rostovs, the mother and the youngest daughter, both being named Natalia. All day since morning, carriages had been rolling up, big posh ones with six horses pulling them, bringing a continual stream of visitors to the Rostov household, an enormous house on Povaskia Street, very well known to all Moscow. The Countess herself and her handsome eldest daughter were in the drawing room, entertaining the well-wishers who arrived in wave after wave. The Countess was 40-something and her face was sort of oriental-looking and looked like it had done some city miles. Having 12 kids will do that to you. She moved and spoke in a relaxed, calm way as a result of her exhaustion, and this gave her a distinguished air which inspired respect. Princess Anna Mikhailovna Drubatskaya who was also a member of the household, was seated in the drawing room too, and she was helping receive and entertain visitors. The youngsters were in another room, an inner room. They figured they weren't really needed in the busy drawing room. The Count met the guests and saw them off, inviting them all to return later for dinner. Thanks heaps for coming, Monsieur, or Monsieur, he called everyone my dear without exception and without the slightest change in tone whether you were above or below him in rank really thank you from me and from my two whose name day we're celebrating you're more than welcome to come back for dinner in fact we'd be disappointed if you didn't my chérie. i'm sure i speak on behalf of everyone when i say we'd love you to come monsieur he said these exact phrases to everyone Without variation, with the same big cheerful grin on his full clean-shaven face, the same firm handshake, and the same quick repeated bows, as soon as he'd seen off whoever was leaving, he'd go back into the drawing room, pull up a chair near the remaining guests, and sit lazily, with his legs spread and his hands on his knees, like a big goofy king, happy in his kingdom. He swayed to and fro with dignity, chin-wagging about the weather, Questions of health, normal chit-chat, sometimes in Russian, 
and sometimes in bad French, which he spoke with absolute confidence, and then when the moment came he would jump up, weary but committed to his duty to see off some more guests who were leaving, stroking his thinning grey hair backwards and inviting them to dinner. Sometimes on his way back from the ante-room, he'd pass through the conservatory and pantry, poking his head into the large marble dining hall where tables were being set up for 80 people, and looking at the footmen, who were bringing in silver and china, setting up tables and laying damask table linens. He would call Dmitri Vasilovich, a man from a good family who managed his affairs and accounts, and while looking at the giant table would say, "'Keeping on top of things, mate. Good man, ripper of a feast.' This will be brilliant. And with a sigh and a shrug, he would return to the drawing room. The Countess's footman, who was an absolute unit of a man, entered the drawing room and announced in his deep bass voice, Maya Lvovna Karagina and her daughter. The Countess reflected a moment and took a pinch from a gold snuff box with her husband's portrait on it. I'm getting over it now, all these visitors. I'll still see her, though, but no more after that. She's a bit out of whack. Ask her to come in, she said to the footman in a sad voice, as if saying, ah, to hell with it, just finish me off already. A tall, stocky and proud-looking woman, with a round-faced, smiling daughter, entered the drawing room, their dresses rustling. Ah, dear Countess, what a time. She's been out of it, poor kid. At the Ruzumovsky's ball and Countess Apraskina. I was really pleased, came the sounds of excitable feminine voices interrupting each other and mingling with the rustling of dresses and scraping of chairs then one big long conversation started that would here and there and that wound here and there and ended in i'm so glad mama's health countess apraxina and then there was some more rustling of dresses as they moved back out of the anteroom cloaks and mantles were put on and the final guests drove away they had been talking about the chief topic of the day, the severe illness of the filthy fucking rich golden child of Catherine's day, Count Bezikov, and about his Ill- illegitimate son, Pierre, the very same Pierre who had behaved so poorly at Anna Pavlovna's reception with all his pro-Napoleon talk. Yeah, I feel so bad for the poor Count, said the visitor. He's not in good nick, and now this new rumour about his son... That'll be the end of him. What rumour? asked the Countess, as if she didn't already know what the visitor was alluding to, though she'd heard about the cause of Count Bezikov's distress a dozen odd times. That's what good a modern education does, said the visitor. I reckon while he was overseas, this young man was allowed to do whatever he wanted, and now he's in Petersburg being a total dickhead. He was expelled by the police. No kidding, replied the Countess. He chose to hang around with a bunch of silly larrikins, interposed Anna Mikhailovna. Prince Vasily's son Anatole, Pierre and a certain Dolokhov have apparently been up to all kinds of mischief, and they've paid the price. Dolokhov has been demoted to the ranks, and Bezikov's son Pierre sent back to Moscow. Vasily Karagin has managed to get his son Anatole off the hook for the most part, but even he has been asked to leave Petersburg. Uh, but what did they do? asked the Countess. Oh, they're absolute rascals, dickheads, especially that Dolokhov, replied the visitor. He's one of Maya Ivanovna Dolokhov, Dolokhovna's sons. She's a great woman, and that's her son? Imagine, the three dipshits got hold of a bear, God knows how, put it in a carriage, and took off to visit some actresses. 
The police tried to intervene, and what do you think the young men did? They tied a policeman to the bear, back to back, tied them together, then threw them in the Moika Canal. And then the bear just swam around the canal with the struggling policeman stuck to his back. Ha! <laughs> the policeman must have loved that. He'll never live that one down, shouted the Count, laughing his ass off. That's shocking. How can you laugh at that, Count? But the ladies' stern faces cracked, and they burst into laughter too. They barely managed to rescue the poor bugger, continued the visitor. And we're talking about the son of Cyril Vladimirovich Bezikov, out there acting like such a fine gentleman, and he was supposed to be so well educated and switched on. I blame his foreign education. That's what made him so unhinged. I hope that he's shunned here in Moscow, even with all his money. They wanted to introduce him to me, but I told him to stick it. I've got to consider my daughter's money. Pierre doesn't have money. What are you on about? asked the Countess, turning away from the girls, who at once acted like they weren't interested. Cyril Vladimirovich Bezikov's children are all illegitimate, including Pierre, as far as I know. The visitor made a gesture with her hand. I reckon he's got a shit ton of them. Princess Anna Mikhailovna just had to throw in her two cents here, clearly wanting to show off her connections and knowledge of what went on in society. The simple fact is this. She spoke in a very gossipy half-whisper, leaning forward. Everyone knows Count Cyril is a massive slut. Even he's lost count of his children, but Pierre has always been his favourite. Ah, oh, mate. He was such a looker, that Cyril. Even a year ago remarked the Countess. I reckon he's the best-looking man I ever saw. Uh, yeah, well, that was a year ago. Today he looks like a melted candle, said Anna Mikhailovna. Anyway, as I was saying, Prince Vasily is the next heir to Cyril's fortune, though through his wife. But the Count is pretty keen on his boy Pierre. He looked after his education, even wrote to the Emperor about him. So when he dies, which, by the way, might be very soon, Dr. Lorraine has already come from Petersburg... When he dies, no one knows what will happen with his fortune, if it will go to his boy Pierre or to Prince Vasily. We're talking 40,000 serfs and millions of rubles. Trust me, it's true. Prince Vasily himself told me. Besides, Cyril Vladimirovich is my mother's second cousin, so we're basically family. Oh, and he's Boris' godfather, she added, as if she attached no importance at all to that fact. Prince Vasily arrived in Moscow yesterday. I heard he's here... On some inspection business, remarked the visitor. Ha, ah, yeah, inspection business, said the princess. Sure, uh, between you and me and the fence post, that's just a cover. He's really here to see Count Cyril Vladimirovich, knowing how ill he is. Ha, ah, the Count laughed suddenly. Ha, ah, tied to a bear, classic, he said, and noticing that the older visitors were paying him no attention whatsoever, he turned to the young ladies. Can you imagine how would he have looked? What a pisser. He'll never live that down, that policeman, tied to a bear. And as he waved his arms wildly to impersonate the policeman, his beer belly and man boobs shook with a deep ringing laugh, the easy laugh of a man who always eats well and definitely drinks well. Uh, so do come and dine with us, he said. All right, there we go. There's chapter 10. Another great chapter. <laughs> So they got drunk, took a bear, tied it to a policeman, and threw them in a river. Love it. Love it. All right, have your say about that, madness. 
over at the uh, Year of War and Peace subreddit. Cool, guys. Thanks very much for listening, and I will see you tomorrow.